All right, friends, good morning. Let's uh, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to keep going through uh, the letter from our brother Paul to the Corinthian church. The last couple weeks uh, in chapter 8, we looked at this principle of liberty to be guided by love. The example that Paul was writing to them about is meat sacrificed to idols, which is probably not a, a big topic for us uh, per se. Uh, but for the Corinthian church where you have Jews and Gentiles, Jews coming out of the law that said you were never to eat meat that had been sacrificed to, the, uh, to an idol, and you had Gentiles coming out of the whole Greek and Roman culture that uh, is polytheistic, and it was all about sacrificing uh, to idols. And so Paul just begins to talk about the fact that we all will have different understandings, meaning look at things differently, consider things differently, and that will cause, it can cause us to be proud. And though, even though we know that there's nothing in an idol that has power, that there's no power on earth or anything like that, and that as Christians we're free to eat meat sacrificed to idols, if my liberty stumbles or makes it difficult for another person, uh, then I begin to walk, I, I, I leave a walk of love and I walk uh, into a walk of selfishness. And he says that if we choose to continue in liberty that stumbles our brethren, that we're going in a bad direction, in a, in a non-God-honoring uh, direction. Uh, we looked at it, and I think it's important too, it's, it's one of those very difficult verses, but verses if we grapple with them, they're truths, if we grapple with it and respond to it, can actually turn out to our great benefit and change in our life. John puts it this way in his letter. He says that if we say we know God, he's, two different times he talks about it, he says if we, know, if we say that we know God, or if we say that we love God, but we have hatred in our heart, which means to despise or to minimize our brother or sister in Christ. He says the reality is we actually don't know God at all. And we don't love him. Which sounds really difficult, right? That sounds rough. Uh, but the implication there is that we can repent and turn back to God. Because if we know him, if we truly know who he is and what he's like and, and what he wants and, and what he has for us, that should generate a love for others in our hearts. It should humble us, and it should be, enable us to look at others with care. So it's not to condemn or to crush, but it's just a, a very difficult but fantastic litmus test of are we truly walking with God, or are we kind of pretending? In chapter 9, he's going to go on, and he's going to say, look, he's going to use himself as an example, but it's also a defense. He says in chapter 9, in my defense to some of you at Corinth. So there were people at Corinth, a church that Paul had started. He was there for 18 months, uh, years prior. There were people there that were now making accusations against him. We don't know entirely the accusations, but it seems to be that it might be issues with greed or it might be issues with a, a different gospel, something to that effect. And so Paul, writing back to them, he says, you have to remember something. I never took any money from you. That when Paul was there, he, the, for the first part, he made tents. Then eventually, Timothy and Silas show up, and whether they brought a gift from Macedonia or they worked in his stead, whatever it might be, it says very clearly in Acts 18.5 that once Timothy and Silas got there, that he was full-time preaching the gospel. So he's no longer making tents. 
So Paul wasn't saying that he never made a wage from the gospel, and that's what Romans 9 is mostly about, that the idea of reaping where you've sown and so forth, and we're not going to rehash all that. But Paul says, I didn't take advantage of that liberty, of that right, when I was among you. He says, I did that so that I could make sure that the gospel was free to you. The other people paid him to be there, but he didn't take money from them. And so he's addressing and defending himself to some people in Corinth, and he's addressing this idea of, uh, people that live by the gospel making their wage by the gospel. In chapter 10, or in kind of the end of chapter 9, when we get into chapter 10, now he's going to talk about uh, more about freedom, more about um, how, we, how, how we are to walk with Christ, but it's in the format of us using the freedom that we have in Christ to invest in and move forward in our walk with Christ. So we're going to actually pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and verse 24, because this is the introduction to chapter 10. So if you don't mind, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. If you want a Bible and you need one, there's under your chair or the chair in front of you, there's, there's kind of Bibles scattered about. So he says there in verse 24, he says, do, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize." So Paul is communicating here, remember our whole context of liberty and when to use liberty, when not to use liberty, how to walk in love and still have liberty and these different things. He makes a statement about his own personal walk with Jesus, and he says that he, he makes it intentional. It's just, we kind of covered this last week, so I want to summarize it. It's a very intentional thing. He's not saying that you earn something or that you, you, you somehow make yourself more valuable to God or you maintain your salvation or anything like that. He's saying that in his walk with Jesus, in his, his endeavor to love others, in his endeavor to love Christ, that he is deliberate about how he lives. He makes two different analogies. So the, the Greek games took place just, what, I think it was like 12 or 20 miles from Corinth. So when he's talking about games and fighting and these things, they would have been very familiar with, with the games that he's referring to. And so he says, he says, I'm like a boxer. I don't swing at the air. I don't swing wildly. You know, if you've ever, if you've ever like seen um, like UFC or one of like the, those fighting or boxing itself, those guys, they don't swing wildly. Like if you, if you ever see like two guys in a fight or something, they don't know how to swing, and they're like, ugh, ugh, right? And then you go and you watch boxing, it's way different. And so Paul says, I don't just swing wildly. That's not how I work. He says, I make sure that my strikes are calculated, that I, I work on it. And then he says, he says I, I, I buffet my body. Again, the word body there is not just corpse like sarka in the Greek. It's soma, which would be like the whole person. And so he says, I, I buffet or I discipline my whole body, my whole person. And this is kind of where we ended last week because this is an important idea. It can seem very overwhelming, I think. If you have just kind of a generic idea, well, you should just try harder. Just don't swing badly. You can just walk out going, I don't know what that means. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to move forward in that. But when we look at this idea of disciplining myself, when we look at this idea of actually being intentional about my Christian walk, it can really hone in. Number one, we have the Holy Spirit. And a lot of times the Holy Spirit, when we're involved in something we should or shouldn't be doing or whatever it might be, Holy Spirit is very faithful to minister to our hearts and say, don't do that. Have you ever been about to say something? And you hear the still small voice says, 
right? And then you're just like, and then afterwards, it's just destruction, right? You say something you shouldn't say in a marriage, you say something you shouldn't say in a a work position, something like that, and you you know the Holy Spirit doesn't want you to say it, and you still say it, and then typically destruction occurs in, in some manner. And it can be a lot of things like that. It can, there used to be these things, and this is kind of wild. You would go to the store and get a movie. You guys familiar with that? And, and you'd have to walk into a store, and you could pick a movie. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I'd be perusing the movies, not even in the curtain, but perusing the movies outside the curtain, and you just hear the Holy Spirit say, no, 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 you, 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 you don't want to watch that. And so there's times in our lives where the Holy Spirit supernaturally ministers to us. I think there's times in our lives, too, we, our own conscience bears us witness. Where we say, I know I shouldn't have said that. Or I know I shouldn't have done that. Or I shouldn't, shouldn't have gone there. I shouldn't have treated someone like that. So when we're, when we're buffeting our body, when we're disciplining our, our person, we become and we take accountability for the things the Holy Spirit points out to us. Or our conscience, or, or maybe a faithful brother or sister is willing to come along and say, hey, I, I saw that. that was, I just want to encourage you. That might have been incredibly rude to that person. That might have really been hurtful to that person. And instead of going, you don't know me, right? Instead of kind of rearing up in our pride and say, oh, I've been a Christian for, we just go, okay, okay. And we, we take that to the Lord. See, really, if we can boil it down to a couple of easy tasks, buffeting our body or disciplining our, our person, is simply the idea of being honest. Honest with ourselves and honest with God. And, 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 and ultimately honest with one another. But just that idea that when God tells me through the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, through another person, through the Holy Spirit, through my conscience, that's wrong. I just go, okay, that's wrong. I don't try to justify it. I don't try to make a reason why I get an exception. I just say, you know what? That was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. And the cool thing is, this is one of the things I've noticed, uh, that when you acknowledge that to other people, it makes incredible opportunity for the gospel. You know, I used to work with this guy years ago, and his name is Dennis, and uh, he's just hard to be around. And, um, and we, just, we would have some, some clashes here and there, and part of it was my pride, and part of it was just he didn't have a big work ethic. And we worked at Honda together, and uh, he would just constantly nag me about stuff. And it was stupid stuff, too. And there were days where I would just rage and just finally be like, you are ridiculous. Why? I mean, it, it, it'd be a longer story. And uh, I remember one time uh, when, I, well, when I was finally moving and we were coming up here, because I would, I would talk to him usually after work if I had a meltdown and just say, hey, I'm really sorry. You know, I misrepresented Christ, whatever. And I remember when I moved here and I was just saying goodbye to him. And I said, you know, I'm, I, I just want to reiterate, I'm sorry for the times that um, I treated you poorly. You know, I, I shouldn't have shouldn't done that. And it was pretty wild because he just, he just said, you know what? You're probably the only real Christian I know. And it wasn't because I treated him well. It wasn't because I was the best guy to work next to. Uh, I didn't take kindly to any of his nagging or any of that. It wasn't because I turned the other cheek all the time, which would probably have been wise. It was because there was just honesty. And so a big part, it's better to not sin, <laughs> right? But a big part of, of moving forward is just going to be honesty. Honesty with ourselves, honesty with God, and then honesty with others. And then mix that with some humility.
So it's, it's that lead-in. It's Paul saying that I make an effort, not an effort to be saved, not an effort for any of that. He says, I make an effort so that I won't be disqualified from the prize. This has to do with reward. It doesn't have to do with salvation. But there's an effort, and the effort isn't to earn it. The effort is to be positioned to receive it. That's really important. In other words, you don't do good works. It's not like you get saved by grace through faith through the blood of Jesus. And then it's all of a sudden, now you start this life of try hard. And the more good works you do, then the more treasure you get in heaven. That's not the idea at all. The idea is the more that I yield to Christ and say yes to him, the broader and greater my life gets with him. And thus there is, in a sense, reward for that. All I do is position myself. It's God's grace that might give me anything that I could receive when I stand before him. So we're not moving from a place of grace to works. We're just moving to a place of being deliberate, being honest, and positioning ourselves to receive all that God has for us right now and when we get to heaven. So it's with that that we jump into chapter 10 and verse 1. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant, for I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, they, for they all drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered uh, in the wilderness. Now, some of your translations might say that uh, their bodies, it, it leaves the word bodies out. It says that they were uh, laid low, uh, different things like that. But Paul reaches back here, and he's going to do this for most of this chapter. He's reaching back to the example of Israel. And he's using Israel as an example of what happened to them when they didn't walk by faith, when they weren't walking in obedience to God. There's some, some qualifiers I think we want, to, we want to talk about here. Well, we'll, do it. We'll, we'll talk about the qualifiers later. Let's cover this first. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this. So he, he says, I want you to be aware of that this is how God worked in the old covenant. He says that our ancestors were all under the cloud. The idea is they're the Shekinah glory of God. All the Israelis experienced God's glory, right? They all saw the plague. They were all under the cloud. They were all led by Moses out of Egypt. And he's going to talk more about that. They were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. Every Israeli that came out of Egypt passed through the Red Sea, right, on dry ground. They were all, and this one might sound a little weird, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food. So Paul uses the example of baptism, which is immersion, right? That's what the word means, immersion. And, and he says, look, Israel, in God's eyes, was baptized into or immersed in Moses. They identified with Moses, and Moses led them out, Okay. So he says, the point that he's making here right now is that every single Israeli had the same opportunity as every single Israeli. Does that make sense? They all were in Moses. They all went across on dry land. Then he says they all ate the same spiritual food and the spiritual drink. Uh, it's not to say that they had some sort of mystical food and drink. I suppose manna might have been a bit mystical. But the idea is that they all had every single provision that God has for them. Right? And, he says, and he says that, that they all drank from the rock that followed them, that's Christ. That doesn't mean that the rock that, that Moses smote both times was Jesus. It's, it's, a, it's a metaphor. It means that Christ, and it's actually very encouraging, Christ, the, you know, before he was incarnate, the pre-incarnate Jesus 
had been providing for and watching over God's people from the very beginning. He's not like a newcomer when he takes the form of a man. Uh, the Bible says he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, that of Hebrews. So when he comes in the likeness of sinful flesh, he's not a newcomer to what's going on. He'd been there the whole time with Israel. He'd been providing for Israel, watching over Israel, you know, all these things. And so what Paul, remember, the, he, this is an example for us to look at. And it's a, it's, gonna, it's a warning for us to look at. And the warning is that every Israeli had every opportunity to do whatever God asked them to do, but they didn't. And so because of that, they were laid low. This is not a reference to salvation. How do you know that? Because when, what he's talking about here, the wandering, the Cliff Notes version, they go to enter into the promised land. They send spies into the land. The spies are gone for 40 days. The spies come back, 12 spies. They come back. They give a report. Two spies says, we can do this. Ten spies say, no, we can't. They, give, they say, these people are giants. They'll crush us. They'll kill our ladies. They'll kill our children. We can't do this. The bulk of Israel sides with um, the bad report. They say, we can't do it. God's not going to be able to give us victory. There's no way we can go into this. And so they decide not to go into the land. So God says, because you doubted me, and we know it has to do with belief, in Hebrews chapter 3, in verse 14 through 16, uh, we, there's a, if you want to go back and, and read that, there's a statement that the author of Hebrews makes where he says, quite simply, so we see that Israel didn't enter into God's rest, the promised land, didn't enter into, their, into his rest because of their unbelief. So it wasn't the weird sexual worship that Aaron caused. It wasn't their crying out at Mara. It wasn't any of those things. It was the fact that when push came to shove and it came time to enter into what God said he would bless them with, they said, no, we're not going to do it and we don't think you can do it. And so because of that, God said, well, then you won't enter in. If you refuse to enter in, then I won't take you in. But what I'm going to do, God says, he says, every one of you is going to perish. So the cutoff was 20 years old. Everybody who was 20 years old, because that's the age that a man could go to war, everybody who was 20 years old and older all died in the wilderness. They wandered for 40 years. But in that 40 years, what was happening? God was their, their shoes didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't wear out. God provided food for them. He didn't just say, you know what, you didn't believe me, so you're done. I'm killing all of you. That's not the picture. The picture is that they could have entered into something great, and they didn't. God still provided for them. He still loves them. He still cares about them. He still uh, makes sure they even ask for meat at one point, and he shows them, yeah, yeah, you, you just want what you want. Here it is. And then they, they end up puking it up because they eat too much. They're, they're gluttony. He just is constantly giving them lessons and, and, and working with Israel. That's what he does for 40 years. He doesn't cast them off and say, you're not my people anymore. He just says, you don't get what I have for you. you don't, you're not going to enjoy the best, which is probably something that every one of us in this room can identify with. Times in our life where God has said, even in small decisions, where God has said, you can let that be. And we go, no, I'm going to pick at it. And then destruction occurs or irritation or brokenness. And we go, oh, weird. How'd that happen? Right? This is, this is how these things work. So when we ignore God, whether it's on kind of minutia or small things, or we ignore God on big things, it's always the same result. We don't walk in and experience the best that God has for us. So that's the example that Paul is giving here. He's saying, just like Israel had everything they needed to walk with God, just like he took care of them for everything and they missed out, that's the warning. He's saying, we can do the same as believers. 
He's not saying you're going to lose your salvation or become unsaved or something like that. He's saying if you walk in your life in unbelief, that you too, I will also miss out on what God has for us. If we keep going there, and there's more to be said about the rock being Christ, but we're not going to cover it for time's sake. We're going to keep moving. In verse 6, he says this. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of they did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think that you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except excuse me, what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So Paul is going to go on. He's going to give examples of how Israel fell, sins that they committed, that they were part of, and they fell. Now, I want to point something out that's very important out of verse 6 and verse 11. He says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on the evil things that they did. And then he says in verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. It's important that we don't take some sort of weird view that the things that happened to them were examples to us. In 11, the example to us comes in the fact they were written, okay? The examples were for them. Does that make sense? They had sin, and so God did gave them examples. Now those examples are written down for us so that we can learn from them. Not God made those things happen to them, those naughty Israelites, so that that way us superior new covenant people could see that and not have to do the same thing. That's not what he's saying. He's saying they had examples and they were written down for us. So these were things that these are ways that God responded to Israel to work in their heart and their life and their covenant to draw him back to himself. I also want to point out that we're, he's, we're, we're crossing covenants right now, right? So the old covenant, if we were to go back and read the old covenant promises and how it worked, this is important. The old covenant promises were based on the, bulls, the blood of bulls and goats. They were based on very physical things, right? So if you look at the old covenant promises, it would say, you know, if you're, if you're faithful, if you do your sacrifices, if you, if you do these things, your, if you follow God with your whole heart, your cows won't have miscarriages. So I'm sure there's a lot of Christian farmers that if we interviewed them, that they would say, yes, my cow has had a miscarriage. But we're not in the old covenant anymore, are we? We're not. It says in, in 2 Corinthians Paul 2 and 3, Paul calls the old covenant, literally says it's, it's obsolete. So the old covenant doesn't pertain to the Christian anymore. Other places says we're not under the law anymore. We're set free from the law. The law was a schoolmaster to lead to Christ. So we don't want to take these things and then try to kind of old covenant ourselves and say, well, that's what Paul is saying. If I'm idolatrous, God kills me. That's not what he's saying. He didn't even do that to Israel. Notice the numbers, 23,000. There's an interesting, if you do some history, and I don't want to step on any toes. I know a lot of us are excited about Israel. That's fine. But Israel had a lot of issues. Historically, if you like to 
listen to history podcasts or you like exploring archaeology or anything like that, virtually every single secular, which means done by non-Christian, every single secular uh, dig that's done by historians or archaeologists in Israel or in the, the, the land around Israel, they always find little Baal. Baal was kind of a, it's kind of a generic name. Uh, you had Midianites had a Baal, and then you had uh, the Jebusites had a Baal. It's kind of different. It just means Lord. But when you read secular history, most secular historians will link Baal as being the same as Jehovah because Israel was so inundated with idolatry through the bulk of their existence that they're inseparable to anybody who, who, who doesn't want to believe the Bible. They're the same God. And you go, well, that's, that's, that's just what the world says. This is, an, I think, maybe even a worse example. Do you remember when Elijah has like the showdown at the OK Corral with the 400 prophets of Baal? Remember that? And they like make a bonfire and they try, whoever calls down fire from heaven, that's who, whose God is the Lord. Do you guys remember that? Well, so after that goes down and fire comes down and Israel gets all amped and they kill the prophets of Baal and all that, uh, you know, there, a messenger comes to Elijah and says, I'm going to do what you did to my prophets by tomorrow. So Elijah, this great man of faith, it says he runs away and he goes under a juniper bush and he kind of like curls up into a ball and basically says, just kill me, God. And you go, that's kind of rough. So maybe, though, God's encouragement is even more rough. So Israel is like three million people-ish, right, at this point, right? And so God comes to him through an angel and he says, don't worry, Elijah. I have 7,000 people that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000 out of 3 million. So that means whatever, 2,993,000 Israelites have bowed the knee to Baal. There's only 7,000 who haven't. So it's important that we consider these things. That God didn't just, every time somebody was an idolater, he didn't just wipe them out. Israel would have been like 7,000 people. He was patient with them. He was kind to them. He drew them out. So in our example, you go, why are you spending so much time on this? Because I've been through so many teachings where someone reads this and says, if you don't do everything all the time right, you're done. And that's just not true. Does sin always destroy? Yeah, it does. It's amazing the smallest word that we're not supposed to say, the damage it can do. It's amazing the, the smallest action or cold-heartedness or any hard-heartedness, the, the destruction it can do to us and to those around us. So no one's being an advocate for sin. We're just being an advocate for hope. The fact that God's not done with us, he's not through with us, that there's warnings that we have in Scripture that says we need to be in, in, intentional about what we're doing. We need to be honest with God about what's going on in our lives. We need to work towards you know, those goals, in a sense, make effort to be true so that we can be available for what God has for us. So we're all into that. But it doesn't mean that we lament and we, we look around us and say, oh, if you've done this or you've done that, then you're done for. It's never been how God works. Think about David. David deserved the death penalty by law at least twice. And he didn't get it. And Nathan comes to him as a prophet and says, God has forgiven your sin with Bathsheba. That was adultery. The law was that both Bathsheba and he, unless he forced himself on her, in which case if he forced himself on her, it was only him that was to die. So God has always, even in the dispensation of the law, he has always operated with people by grace. 
He's always been merciful. He's always been kind. And yet Paul says here today, we don't want to minimize the warning. There's a warning to Christians that God has something so good for us, a life that is so not just pleasant, but active and amazing and supernatural, that advances and changes and works His glory upon us, that we have this, all this access, and we don't want to neglect it for silly idols, for silly plastic trinkets. So in his examples, he has a few. He says, number one, it's idolatry. He says, some of them, they, they were given to idolatry and they were slain. And it's true. They were slain. In this case, what is idolatry? Because most of us probably are not going to go down and grab, you know, a little Buddha and put it in our house and like stick a banana in front of it. Most of us are probably not going to do that. But idolatry, and I think it's been said, and I think people mean well. I'm not trying to be a jerk. They say, well, anything that you put before God is an idol. Okay, Maybe. But that's, I think, a little an oversimplification because idolatry boils down to this. It's been the same since the first idolater. It's been the same since Nimrod as it has been until this very day. And it will be until Jesus Christ returns. And this is it. Idolatry is when we take something and we allot it power that we rob from God and we say that it's able to give us something that we want or need and then we serve it in some way to get that. That's what idolatry is. So let's say that I think, let's say my life is bad and I have trouble coping with it. And so I go and I buy weed. And when I'm feeling low, I just smoke weed because it makes me feel better. And so what I've done there is I've looked at weed and I've said, this has power. It makes me feel better. It gives me what I want. And so by allowing it to exercise its, its thing in my life to change my attitude, I give it that power and I serve it. But ultimately, I'm just serving it because I want to get what I want. It doesn't matter if it's Moloch and I'm sacrificing my child to get better crops. It doesn't matter if it's Aphrodite and I'm having sex with a temple prostitute to make my, my wife more fertile. It doesn't matter if I'm looking to Zeus because I want to, or not Zeus, but Poseidon because I want to fish and I don't want to get killed while I'm fishing. And so I sacrifice to him to make sure that the seas are calm. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. I look at something, I ascribe it power that only belongs to God, and I say that I will serve you in order to get what I want. That is what idolatry is. And so when we look at idolatry today, what we're wrestling with, we do that. We can idolize Netflix. We can sit down in front of Netflix and say, this will calm my heart. I could go and perhaps... Uh, labor a little bit in the Word, spend some time in prayer. I could seek God, or I can sit on my couch with some ice cream, and I can watch The Office. And then after, like, you know, binge-watching whatever we're watching for, like, four hours, and we've eaten too much ice cream, and our blood sugar's gone like this, and we've now become suicidal, we're just like, it didn't work in the end. <laughs> right? We, we, we ascribe to it. And so Paul's saying, don't ascribe to that. Don't serve idols. If you're in a place where you're like, I don't know how to find encouragement in the word, we would love to help you with that. Because the, the word is powerful, it is mighty when we understand it, when we're able to work through it. So he, he's giving a warning to the Corinthians. He's saying, look, don't fall after idolatry like they did. When you look at with, what was with Aaron, Aaron makes the golden calf, and that's the example he gives where he says that they sat down to eat and they rose up, some of your Bibles might say, to play. It's literally lasciviousness, sensual sexuality is what it is. So what Aaron orchestrates is he basically makes a golden calf and then he orchestrates a gigantic sexual worship around that calf. 
And you got to love the humor from the Bible because Moses and Joshua are on Mount Sinai and Joshua hears it and he goes, that's the sound of war. And Moses goes, that's not the sound of war. <laughs> goes back down. You're like, you're innocent, Joshua. I love that. It's great for you. But they go down and they see it and then, and then there's this, this judgment that occurs through Moses and through God. Also, a cool side note, Moses is high priest a month later. You ever think about that? He literally causes the entire nation to have a giant orgy. And a month later, God says, you're my high priest. It's pretty wild, the grace of God, isn't it? Amazing how kind he is, the forgiveness, the cleansing. This is amazing. So here we are. We don't want to fall into the same thing. We don't want to look at pleasure. We want to look at whatever it might be and serve it to try to get what we're looking for because the reality is that Christ has everything we're looking for. The bottom line is oftentimes it just takes a little bit of time to invest in spiritual things to receive spiritual fruit. Whereas with flings of the flesh, it takes very little investment to get reward from the things of flesh. But one lasts forever and one does not. The next example he gives here, he says in verse 8, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 20,000 of them died, or 23,000 of them died. And he's referring to another incident. Um, you know, I have all the incidents written down, but I'm not going to go over them. I'm glad to give them out afterwards. Uh, but he's referring to another incident. We covered a lot about sexual morality a few chapters ago. Uh, the reality is that our bodies are not designed for being promiscuous. Our brains are not designed, our hormones are not designed for being promiscuous. There's great physical and psychological toll through by being promiscuous. So when God says don't be involved in those type of things, it's not that he created sex and then made it a forbidden fruit. It's that he created sex and said this is for a time and a place that will make it glorious and healthy. And anywhere else, it's just destructive uh, uh, and sinful. He goes on from there. He says, we should not test Christ as some of they did. And they were killed by snakes. You know, a lot of times we say, we, we, we come to a place, in this case, remember, they're complaining. And so the Lord sends snakes, fiery serpents, just means venomous snakes among them. Um, and, and this is another, I think, interesting point here. If you go back and look, Moses, they go to Moses and they go, oh, we're so sorry that we complained. Tell God we're sorry. And so Moses goes, okay. And he goes to God and he says, God, they're really sorry. And God says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bang out a bronze serpent and stick it on a pole in the middle of the camp. And then when anybody looks at that pole after they've been bitten, then they'll live and they won't die. So I don't know how long it takes to make a brazen serpent, and I don't know how good it has to look. There's no, like, we don't read of any instructions of dimensions or how fancy it has to be or how skilled Moses is, for that matter. Maybe he made a stick figure snake. I have no idea. But the point is that it takes time, right? You have to, you have to make the metal, fire the metal, melt the metal, shape the metal. Meanwhile, people are getting bit by snakes. You know, if you're one of those people, you're probably standing there like, Mo, pick up the pace. It looks good enough, man. Just put the snake up. What are you doing, Right? <laughs> God didn't just deliver them from the snakes. He gave them life after the snakes. And there's a picture there for us, right? They complained. And so God basically reminded them of how good they had it. And then afterwards, there isn't this immediate deliverance. Okay, no more snakes. It's no, you're going to keep getting bit, but you're not going to die. Because you're going to learn what the cost of complaining is. And that might seem a little bit harsh. But the reality is, and he's going to go on and talk about grumbling, and that some of them died for grumbling. The reality is that when we complain and we grumble, it is not of God. It's never of God. This is a, a really hard true, 
Jesus told us, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And a lot of times, we will make reasons for why we spoke, right? If we've complained about something, we've said, I was hungry. It wasn't my fault. I was hangry. And so my low blood sugar caused this, which, which may be true. We say things like, they deserved it. We say things like, you don't know how stupid they are. That's why I said it. We can make up tons of reasons that are outside of ourselves of why we get to complain. But the reason in this case, and again, it's a different covenant at a different time. If you have, a, if you have two million people out in the, you know, it's, it's the desert. It's out in the, you know, it's out in the Israeli desert. or the, It's not Israeli, yes, yeah, the, Canaan, the Canaanite desert. Or, or they're part in the Jev of, of Egypt, different places around that area. It doesn't really matter where you go. It's all desert. And it's all really hot. And so if you get one person in a camp that begins to complain, begins to murmur, begins to grumble, and that goes to another person and another person, pretty soon you have this huge discontentment. Morale gets crushed, doesn't it? Through complaining. It's incredible. So when we complain, what we're doing ultimately is we're saying, I am in a situation and God has not done what he should have done or he allowed this or somehow God has failed me. That's what complaining is. This occurred, I don't like it, and now I'm going to voice that I don't like it. And it's interesting too because complaining is very easy, isn't it? And in fact, for, for a lot of us, it's just the first thing we do, we walk through a door. How was your day? Oh, you would not believe it. This person did this, and that person did that, and they're all morons, and I just can't believe it, and, but I'm good. If all these bad people weren't around me, I would be fine. But the reality is from the abundance of the heart. So every time something, some sort of complaint, some sort of in unjust criticism, some, something like that comes out of our mouth, it is absolutely no one's fault but our own. In fact, that was one of the things that was boasted of Jesus in the Old and the New Testament, that he didn't open his mouth when he was accused or when he was beaten or any of those times. He didn't complain about it. He didn't say, who do you think you are, Roman soldier? I built your soul. He was just quiet. And he endured it for our salvation, right? So when we complain, it's something that's very serious. And when we complain at church, it's how church splits can happen. Instead of going to the person or the issue and saying, hey, you know, blah, 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 I don't, I'm not sure about this, or this seems unjust, or this shouldn't be this way, or what's going on, you know, we, we go to each other. It just comes naturally because of our fallen natures, right? Which is a major theme in Corinthians. The fact that we have a fallen nature that we receive from Adam that's sinful and will only create sin, will only create destruction. And then we have a new, a new life that we have it's called the new man in Christ. It's called the new nature in the Bible. And then when we got saved, our soul was somehow sealed or bonded, however you'd like to label that. The Holy Spirit actually attached himself to our soul because we were spiritually dead, and he infused spiritual life into our souls. And so now through that attachment, he communicates with us. And that's when we, when we sense the Holy Spirit working. It's when we sense the, the Holy Spirit calling us to this or to that. So every day we have an option. Am I going to speak from the abundance of my heart from the old nature? Am I going to fill my heart with the old nature and then let it overflow out of my mouth? Or am I going to let my heart be filled with my new nature in Christ? 
Like Philippians says, to dwell on those things which are wonderful and precious and whatnot. It's so easy to dwell on the negative. It's so easy to just look around us and go, this is lame and this is lame and this is lame and this is lame. But when we do that to people, we just put a curse on them. We just hurt them. We don't help them. There's, it's, I can't think of any time in my life where I help somebody by complaining. But when we instead look at things and say, you know what, yeah, the Lord is working. And I understand that sometimes I can see, oh, you're just being a cheesy Christian. Would to God that more of us were. That we could just, it's not ingenuine to decide I'm going to speak good rather than evil. Even if you don't feel like it. That's actually the true genuineness. That's the true liberty to do what we ought to do and not what we want to do. To be around people and say, I'll speak blessing. I'll speak kindness. And if I don't have anything good to say, I won't say anything at all. So these, these things he's saying, he's giving us this huge warning. It all started with, I buffet my body. I discipline my person. And, by, and from disciplining my person, I make sure that everything I do is deliberate. And when the Holy Spirit speaks to me, I deliberately respond. To then the warning where he says, look, you got to look at Israel. you got to look at what happened. They didn't all lose their salvation. They were all strewn about. They never got to enter the promised land. That generation didn't. And that their idolatry all throughout their history and all their generation constantly cost them safety, peace, everything that God had for them, joy, continually cost them that. And he says, you and I should look in our own lives and to realize the same thing applies to us. There's nothing different for us in that way. That when we continue in things that God has called us away from, even though we have all the resources to walk with God and be with God, it will always and only create destruction in our lives. That's what he's saying. So let's take heed. Let's invest in what God has for us. And then he gives the examples. And then he says in verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So now this is the second warning. I think a lot of us often hear these verses quoted, but we don't necessarily know what they're quoted about. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful you don't fall. Now he's writing to the Corinthians, right? And remember, in the beginning of, chapter, of the, the, the letter there, he says, God loves you. God's going to complete the work that he began in you. God's doing great things in you. You have this incredible spiritual gifting in your midst. He's giving everything you needed, right? That's how he started the whole letter. And now he's saying this, be careful if you think you stand. Because isn't that what pride does? Isn't that what knowledge does? Which is also what he started talking about in verse 8. When we just walk in our knowledge and understanding without love for those around us, we destroy people. And we don't walk in love anymore. And so now he's coming back and he's illustrating the same point. If you think, if I think that I'm standing firm. In other words, if I look at myself and say, doggone it, I am squared away. I am golden. I'm an incredible Christian. I'm a great dad. I'm the best husband that ever lived. I'm all these things. And really nobody else has a place to, to, to say anything to me. If I think that I stand, realize Israel thought the same thing, didn't they? If we were to go back and read through Chronicles and Kings, aren't there the kings constantly making these proclamations about how great they are? Aren't they constantly, like for example, going in and offering incense when they were never allowed to? Constantly being presumptuous? So he just says, be careful. In Romans 12, you lo I love it. He says, he says, everyone should have an honest opinion of who they really are. They're in, in the first five verses there. He says, have an honest opinion about who you are. Again, honesty. It's so huge. Honesty with ourselves and with others and then mingled with humility. 
He says, be careful, verse 13. Then he gives an interesting encouragement and challenge. No temptation is overtaking you except what is common to mankind. That's rough, especially in our society. Because we really all like to think, no, my temptation is way worse than anybody else's. My cross to bear. No one's ever had this. And if you notice that in our society and in the church too, and, and nobody, it's kind of weird because if you try to speak into someone's life with love and care, not all the time, but sometimes, and the response can be, you haven't been through what I've been through. And you're like, that's true. But we have the scripture and we have God's word that says that there can still be hope. And it's like, no, no. Until somebody's been through exactly what I've been through on the same timeline by the same people, no one could ever know. And Paul's not minimizing suffering here. But what he's saying is, we all go through the same things. We all have the same temptations. We may not all share exactly the same things. I might struggle with things that you don't, and you might struggle with things that I don't. But every single struggle that we all encounter is common to human beings. And it's been going on since, well, Adam and Eve, I guess. And he's going to go forward from that. And he's going to say, uh, verse 13, no, uh, except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So he doesn't say, and God will give you the easy way out and make you feel good about everything that happens. He doesn't say that. He says that when you go through a temptation, and the hard thing about temptation is it's tempting, right? If it wasn't tempting, it wouldn't be temptation. There's certain things that a lot of us, we don't wrestle with. And here's a side note when we're talking about walking in love and so forth. Just because we don't wrestle with something doesn't mean that somebody else does, doesn't. And it doesn't mean that they're unjust or extra bad or anything because they don't you know, suffer from the same, thing, same things we do or they have something that we don't. So we want to be very careful to when we're speaking to people and considering people that we really do walk a mile in their shoes, as it were. That we really do think about what must that be like? I, I, I don't experience that, but you know what? I want to try to consider what that would be like to experience that. I don't know what it's like to have that fear. Or I don't know what it's like to, to wrestle with that kind of addiction. Or I don't know what it's like to, to, to have those kind of thoughts or feelings towards certain people. I don't know what that's like. But you know what? That must be hard. Because we have a tendency, if we don't struggle with that particular sin, to just be like, well, buck up. Just don't drink. Just don't watch Netflix. You're welcome. Victory is yours. Right? But if it's something that we struggle with, we're like, oh, I know. Oh, I don't blame you. I understand why you'd go off in that sin and have those two gallons of ice cream. I get it. Right? And what we're called to do is just, that's not how we're called to counsel people. It's not how we're called to help people. We're, all, we're called to consider humbly everyone as an individual, but also with the ability to say there's victory for you. Not because I said it or I experienced it, because Christ knows. And he said. And so we're able to minister, hopefully, to people and just through love and through care, maybe not always having the right words, but having the right attitude, having the right care towards them. And so he says that he will provide a way out. And this, hopefully, is what church is for. Hopefully, this is where you, we can get to know each other, begin to trust each other. You know, as a shameless plug, that's why we have Friday Night Fellowship. It's why we have lunches afterwards. I mean, everybody loves a good lunch, you know, after I get that but it's to be able to sit down and get to know one another, to, to dialogue with each other, to consider each other, so that we can trust one another, that when we're going through a hard time, that we can know, I can come to church, I'm not going to get measured and judged and condemned. 
I'm going to get help. I'm going to get prayer. Hopefully we can develop more and more friend groups within the church. Like, I get it. You, there's 200 some odd people that go to this church. We can't all be best friends, right? I understand that. You guys probably understand that. But we can have friend groups, hopefully that, that trust. Not so that we can all be vicars of each other. And like, Will you come and confess to me your sin, and then I'll hook you up with an internet accountability program, and I'll know every time you do something wrong. That's weird. No. More of a, I'm, I'm sorry that you did that. But you know, there's forgiveness for you. Now let's pray. Next time, why don't you just call me? You can come over, we'll watch The Office. Or if that offends you, we'll get Sesame Street or something. But we'll just hang out, you know? We'll do our thing. You can have coffee, right? Because I'm, I'm here to help you. I'm not here to measure you, judge you. I'm not even here to change you. I'm here to let you know, and, and, and one another, we're all here to let each other know there's hope and there's help and there's care. That's how we want to deal and to help with, with each other. In this last section, he's just going to kind of pile onto idolatry. He says this, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? It is not the bread that we break a, partition in the, uh, excuse me, a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I, want you, I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, too. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So Paul's making a point. Remember, this has to do with the warning, which has to do with not using our rights and, and, and living liberty with love. That's what this all has to do with. So he's making the point going back to Israel. And first he says, for us, the New Testament, he says, the body that we partake of, or the, the bread that we eat that represents Christ's body, he says, that's, well, he says, that's what it represents. He says, I'm speaking to sensible people that the cup that we have, it's a cup of thanksgiving, and it's based on participating in the blood of Christ. So when we take communion, and this is kind of a generic idea that he's bringing back to communion, when we have communion, our, our participation with Jesus is based on his blood. It's the new covenant in his blood. So, so we have that participation with Christ and with one another. And he's going to go on to say, And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the same loaf. He's making the point after talking about uh, the commonality of um, temptation that as Christians, we are still united in that we all partake of the blood and the body of Christ not transubstantiation or the belief that the, the, the bread and the cup become his body and blood. We don't, we don't believe that. The scripture doesn't teach that. But the idea that because all of us all came to Christ in the same way, that all of us all have forgiveness and a new covenant in common, that we're all one loaf. We might say we're all in the same boat. He's just saying that all of us are together, that we all have the same mission that we're all being part of the same thing, the forgiveness, the life that Christ has for us. We're all doing the same thing. Then he says, that when, then he's linking back to history in verse 18, and he's saying, you know, just like the Israelis, they had something similar as far as participating with the sacrifices. So if you brought a sacrifice except for the burnt offering, 
and the sin offering, but any other sacrifice that you brought, you would get some of the meat back. And you would then take that meat and it would, uh, you would eat it with your family, oftentimes in the court cooked, but you'd eat it with your family, and it would be a time of rejoicing. So you went and gave a sacrifice. They, they would be, get butchered. Some of it would be burnt. Some of it would be given to the priest. But part of it came back to you. So you would sit down with your family and have this uh, goat, goat or lamb meal or, or bowl, beef meal, and it was, it was rejoicing. It was a time to rejoice and have a, a feast. The sacrifices weren't all doom and gloom by any means. So he says, <clears throat> he says that they all had their thing because they all ate the sacrifices and then he says in verse 19, uh, Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? Verse 20, no. So he's not making the argument now. He's, he's not changing his argument and saying, actually, if you eat meat sacrificed to idols, it's, it, you're doing this terrible thing. He's not doing that. Instead, he says, he says, But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do, want you, do not want you to be participants with demons. So the, the issue is back to... Don't serve demons. Don't serve anything for something that you need. Don't go back into idolatry to try to get from them what you need. Now, for us, we're like, oh, I don't know how that works. But if you're walking by this gigantic temple of Aphrodite in Corinth every day, and you know that you can stop in, and maybe your wife isn't cranking out babies like you'd like her to, or maybe the old wheat isn't yielding what it should, or whatever it might be, you know that, oh, man, they promised me if I stop in, drop off some meat or some money, have sex with a temple prostitute, that that'll make my life better. So that's what he's talking about. He's saying, don't go back to that. Don't go and look for things that these, that's demonic. The origin of it is not good. He's not saying that, you, that if you eat meat sacrificed to idols, that now it's this terrible thing. He's just saying you don't want to go back to try your satisfaction or completeness or receive something from a demonic place. That's all he's saying at this point. What could become what happens if you begin to, if you're part of idolatry. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Well, you can. Right? He's speaking, he's, he's speaking in, in, a, in a way, he's asking questions and making statements that are, that are kind of self-answering. He's not making absolute statements. You could absolutely stop by the temple of Aphrodite, drink some wine there, and then go to church and have communion. You, you can't do that, right? You can absolutely have a gigantic fight with your family in, in the car on the way to church and then immediately put on smiley faces and come to the door and, and pretend like you didn't. Like There's absolutely ways that we can do this. What he's saying is you can't sow to an idol. You can't sow to something to try to get what you want from it and then come to God and sow to God. Ask God for the same thing. He says, you, you can't do that. If you walk in and endorse idolatry or serving something to get something back, that is what you will get. That's what Paul's saying. You can't partake of the cup of the Lord and of demons. You're going to get fruit from whatever it is that you serve. That's the point that he's making. So he goes on there and he says, I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink, verse 20, in the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. And then, he, and then he's referencing back to Israel, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? One of the things that gets said all throughout the Old Testament, again and again, he says, he says I'm, uh, the Lord says, I am the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God. You familiar with that? And we always equate jealousy with like crazy ex-boyfriend or crazy ex-girlfriend or something like that. And that's not the idea. 
It's a jealousy in purity and love. In other words, like, uh, I love my kids quite a bit, right? And so I'm jealous for them when it comes to things that they get involved for, with. I don't want them to get involved in things that I know in the end will hurt them, right? And so I do things in their lives to try to stop that or to try to interfere with that. I'm not jealous like, oh, they're going to like Nintendo more than me. You know, it's not... It's, it's the idea way more along the lines of, they might, I don't know, but, it, but it's way more along the lines of, I don't, I, don't want them to happen, I, don't, I don't want that to happen to them. I don't want them to experience the fall of those things, so I'm jealous for them. And so Paul makes reference back to Israel, and he says, we, he's, a, he's, he's a jealous God. And over and over, God says, I'm a jealous God, and I'm not going to let you succeed in that. I'm not going to let you find all the, the, the uh, go through all of that. I'm going to stop it. And it's not out of ego. It's out of love. It's, out of, it's a jealousy from love and not ego. And so Paul's saying, do we really want to tempt the Lord and make him jealous over us? Or do we want to just yield to him for what he has for us? And he's going to go on here in verse 23. He says, I have the right to do anything. Um, I have the right to do, he's quoting Corinth again. Uh, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market, and he's going to go on and give us, give us an example. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions for conscience. For the earth is the Lord and everything in it. So he quotes the Psalms to justify eating meat sacrificed to idols. If, excuse me, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal and with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So he sets up this very real scenario. And he says, look, if someone, you know, your coworker, which... You know, maybe you'd have coworkers. You'd probably have a family stand. But somehow or another, somebody invites you over for dinner, and they're pagans. And somebody at the dinner goes, hey, this meat's been sacrificed to idols. He says, then don't eat it, because they, they point it out for a reason. He says, no one says anything. Just eat it, don't ask, and enjoy it, and be thankful. Isn't that amazing freedom? That we don't have to, you, know, you can go buy Christmas lights, because it's okay that they're made in China. Right? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, we can get so worked up about where did this come from and how did this happen and who did this and who did that or I'm boycotting them and I'm boycotting them or I think this was made by people that don't like Christians or, and, and you have to work in your conscience in that and that's fine. But what Paul is saying is you can go to dinner at someone's house. It can be meat brought right out from the temple of Aphrodite and you just eat it and enjoy it and don't ask any questions. God knows you're thankful he says, if I'm just thankful, if I'm just saying, oh, thanks, Lord, for providing this food, it doesn't matter if it was raised up to a statue or not. It doesn't matter if it was cut and some of it was barbecued. He says, it doesn't matter. He goes, but if you're at that same dinner and someone says to you, you know, this was sacrificed to me. This was sacrificed to idols. And he says, don't eat it. Don't do it. Because that person pointed it out because their conscience is weak. And because of their weak conscience, and they're not able to move past what's actually okay, you say, oh, oh, really? Okay, I'm, I'm, I won't have that then. So you say no to yourself for that person. And verse 31, so whatever you eat or drink and whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 
Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of the many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. There in 11 verse 1. So twice in this section, he says, verse 24, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And then he wraps it up in verse 31. Uh, that all that we do, whether we eat or drink, literally meat sacrifice to idols for them, but ex- ex- extensively to, to every context, that we're not to let people stumble, that we're li- to live in a way where we truly look at one another and say, you know what, you're more important than me. You're more important than my steak. You're more important than, than whatever, this drink I want to have or this movie I want to see, whatever it might be, to look at one another and say, you're, you're just more important than that. You're more important than me. And then when I evaluate how I'm living my life and when I'm making life decisions, I can literally evaluate and say, I, obviously I have to take care of me and I have, you, you have to eat, you have to have shelter. <laughs> Nobody's saying, you know, give everything you have away. That's not true. That's not real. But what we are saying is that we make decisions based in the immediate and in the long run. How can I be a blessing to people? How can I make sure that, that other people are, are squared away too and not just make sure I get mine, which is absolutely countercultural. So here's the deal. It's 12.01. God has great things for us. Sometimes this life that he calls us to can seem so scary because giving up our own things for the things of God can seem so scary. We can feel like our identities will be wiped away. We can feel like, how will I be provided for? We can feel like, who, who's going to take care of me? Who's, who's, you know, how, how will my emotional well-being continue? All the things that we can think about, all the reasons why we go, I can't go into the promised land. Those giants will whoop me but they won't, and that's, that's the key. It's taking that step forward and saying, okay. And for those of us, if there's people here that don't know Jesus Christ, if, if there's talking through the Bible and, and considering, and, and maybe this is the first time you've ever heard that, that the gospel is forgiveness of sins. Yes, sins will leave you judged before the Lord. If you, if you reject Christ, if you insist on sin, if you insist on forever being your own person and never allowing God into your life, then you will pay for your sin. But if you're willing today to cry out for the forgiveness that I think we both know you need, then Christ says it's yours for free through his blood. And then he, the crazy thing is he rose from the dead. So he, he, he dies at Calvary. He sheds his blood. He's, his, he is judged by God for our sin. And then he rises from the dead. And when he rises from the dead, he doesn't come back and go, see, you losers. He comes back and he was kind. Even in his resurrection, The resurrection wasn't a giant, I told you so. The resurrection was a giant confirmation. No, the grace is real. The forgiveness is real. So anyone here today that wants the forgiveness of God, it's free. Free through Christ. And anyone here today that just wants to walk with the Lord, you can start today if you haven't. Or if you kind of on and off kind of a gig, you can restart today. There's grace for that. There's kindness for that. So if anybody, like prayer or something like that, will be available up here. But just know the Lord loves you, and he's got great things for you. Father, thank you for your word and the promises and the wisdom that it gives us. Thank you for your kindness that you're working out in us. Thank you for uh, your mercy. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you that this great life that we have of ups and downs, difficulties, Lord, you've been very, very kind to us, and we appreciate it. We pray for opportunities this week to move out of ourselves, to walk in our new nature, walk in the giftings you've given us. 
Lord, may we never sell you short on what you can do in our lives and in others. Lord, we pray that you would continue to be near us, that we would know your presence in our homes, and uh, Lord, that we would experience, continue to experience that joy that surpasses understanding. Thanks for being so kind. In Jesus' name, amen. May God bless you guys.